I'd like to give a talk this evening that I gave here about a year ago and once probably four or five years before that. <clears throat> and so if you've heard it before, I heard my teacher give the same talks, pretty much the same talk over and over again. Maybe there's something in it that you'll hear in a new way, I hope so, or that be useful to you. Because um, I'd like to speak about poetry tonight. And part of that came because I was out this past weekend and today, um, and hearing the sounds of the water and the streams everywhere and the smells of spring just beginning to push itself up through the earth and some blossoms on a few of the fruit trees just beginning to uh, shine and sensing this kind of eternal cycle as again it starts. I mean, I know that the Midwest is having the coldest weather in 80 years or something like that and that Last night it was 35 below zero in North Dakota, and that wasn't with the wind chill. So I'm really grateful that I'm, <laughs> and I wish them well, anyone who lives there. But there's this sense of spring, you know, did you sense it as you kind of, if you got out, out of your house in your car, and walk and smell and move about. And part of this practice that we do together um, is uh, the, the practice of awareness or mindfulness, sometimes it's called the sacred attention, is the attention that allows us to see the beauty of life even in the midst of its difficulties. There is in the kind or compassionate awareness of meditation a retrieval of harmony and our connection with harmony and beauty in the world. Alfred North Whitehead, the philosopher, said, science's exclusion of aesthetics was its most disastrous error. How can we have a technology or a culture or society that doesn't include in its fabric, in its basic decisions, beauty? And that's beauty between people and beauty of the ecology and Without beauty, we are dead to the world, says James Hillman. And of course, art is one expression of that. The dramatists of ancient Athens or Elizabethan England, like Shakespeare and so forth, really what they do is that they offer um, a language that uplifts and orients and reminds us of the human life that we live in a greater and more sacred context. And it's particularly important um, in the face of the problems of society, modern society, the fact that we spend more money on prisons than on schools, um, and that for all that we've done in the area, there's still a tremendous amount of racism, not to speak of warfare and tribalism and hungry people. And it's not to ignore these things, but to see that the source of much of the suffering in the world is the loss of attention and beauty and connection that that attention brings with one another. When we're connected, we can't treat one another in quite that way. Rumi, poem from Rumi to begin with, called Tending Two Shops. 
Don't run around this world looking for a hole to hide in. There are wild beasts in every cave, yourself included. And if you live with mice, the cat claws will find you. The only real rest comes when you're alone with the divine. Live in the nowhere that you came from, even though you have an address here. That's why you see things in two ways. Sometimes you look at a person and see a cynical snake. Someone else sees a joyful lover, and you're both right. Everyone is half and half, just like the black and white ox. Joseph looked ugly to his brothers and most handsome to his father. You have eyes that see from that nowhere and eyes that judge distances, how high and how low. You own two shops and you run back and forth. Try to close the one that's a fearful trap, getting always smaller. Keep open the shop where you're not selling fish hooks, where you are the fish swimming free. (coughs) Sometimes the greatest political act is to turn on Mozart and turn off the news, or to walk by the ocean or in the hills in the sunset, or read a poem to sense the possibility in the midst of all the 10,000 joys and sorrows of finding some peace or balance in this one, in this heart, that can then be brought to the world around us. Etheridge Knight, he puts it this way. Wonderful old black poet. He says, we free singers be sometimes swimming in the music like porpoises playing in the sea. We free singers be come agitators at times, be come eagles circling the sun, hurling stones at hunters, become scavengers cracking eggs in the palm of our hand. If we didn't have music, dancers would be soldiers too holding guns in their arms instead of each other. If we didn't have music, dancers would be soldiers too, holding guns in their arms instead of each other. So one of the great gifts of the Dharma, that is of the Tao, the law, the teachings, is the retrieval of beauty in the midst of all things. It's like the man who went out with his cello into that square in Sarajevo during the sniper fire and the bombing and the mortar shells. And every afternoon at four, he would bring his cello out and he would play music to the citizens of his neighborhood in Sarajevo. This beauty is not a denial of sorrows of the world, but a grace somehow that holds and understands them. The irony and the mixture of um, beauty and terror that make up life, the gain and loss and praise and blame, and all of it the fabric of this amazing existence. Konstantinos Kavafi, who's the 
most beloved of poets of Greece of this century, wrote a poem about the journey to Ithaca, like the journey of Odysseus. When you start on your journey to Ithaca, pray that the road is long, full of adventure, full of knowledge, that the summer mornings are many. Stop at Phoenician markets, purchase fine merchandise, mother of pearl, coral, amber, and ebony, and visit the ancient Egyptian cities to learn all that you can. Keep Ithaca fixed in your mind. To arrive there is, of course, the goal. But do not hurry the voyage at all. Better to let it last for long years and even to anchor at the isle when you are old, rich with all that you have gained on the way, not expecting that Ithaca will offer you anything. For Ithaca has given you the riches of the voyage. Without her, you would have never taken the road. Poetry, beauty, not as a denial of the struggle of life, but as that graciousness that moves through this that we've been given. And that's the attention one cultivates in sitting and walking and meditation. In language, it's expressed as poetry. You can't get the news from poetry, yet men and women die every day for lack of what is found there. Pablo Neruda wrote at one point, I like this kind of the power of poetry to say something in just a few lines. He says, just the same, it would be delicious to scare a notary public with a cut lily or to knock a nun dead with one blow in her ear. He's kind of mischievous. The power of a moment of beauty. I think he was raised by nuns, poor Neruda. And we just finished, as you know, this so-called political season, the elections, all of that. There's a poem I like by Veronica Patterson called A Magical Charm Against the Language of Politics. After watching TV say over and over the names of things, the clean nouns, weeping birch, bloodstone, tanager, read field guides, atlases, gravestones. At the store, bless each apple by kind, Macintosh, wine sap, delicious, Granny Smith, Jonathan. Enunciate the vegetables, parsnip, okra, calendula. When you have compared the politicians' slippery platforms, chant the spiders, comb-footed, round-headed, orb spider, garden cross, feather-legged, ogre-faced, black widow. Remember that most short verbs are ethical. Hatch, grow, spin, trap, eat. Dig deep, Pronounce clearly, pull the words in over your head, hole up for the duration of the season. (laughs) Oh, thank you.
So poetry is the music of language, and Buddhism is filled with poetry. The hundred thousand songs or poems of Milarepa, or the beloved Zen poets like Isa and Basho and Ryokan. Ryokan said, if someone asks my abode, I reply, the east edge of the Milky Way. It's where to find me. And even the Buddha, on the night of his enlightenment, the morning star arose, his awakening took place. The first words were a poem. O house builder, thou art seen at last, the builder of these walls of sorrow. Broken is the ridgepole, shattered the rafters, free at last. No longer will you build this house. Free, enlightened, awakened am I. And the house builder is the builder of grasping and protection and separateness. Or the Buddha said, the fragrance of rose bay, sandalwood, and jasmine can travel only as far as the wind. But the fragrance of the good deeds of the heart rise even to the gods. Hanshan is another of the old Chinese poets. The literal meaning of his name is Cold Mountain. He took that name from his monastery. Clouds and mountains all tangled together up in the blue sky, a rough road and deep woods without any travelers. Far away the lone moon, a bright glistening white, nearby a flock of birds sobbing like children. One old man sitting alone, perched in these green mountains, a small shack, letting my hair grow white, pleased with the years gone by. This life is like water flowing east to the ocean. Just that sense of contentment, of presence, of this life that we've been given, taking a seat in the midst of it and being at home with oneself. Thich Nhat Hanh, of course, the great and wonderful Zen teacher and poet that he is, begins with poetry. He says, if you can see with the eyes of a poet, where is it? If you can see with the eyes of a poet, you will see clearly that in this piece of paper, there is a cloud floating. This is kind of his most famous teaching. Without a cloud, there would be no water, and without water, the trees cannot grow, and without trees, we could not make paper. So the cloud, and the rain, and the sunlight, and the logger, and the logger's father and mother, going all the way back to Adam and Eve and before, all in this piece of paper. Everything connected in this great interdependence. In poetry, you can tell the truth, even in one line, like Emily Dickinson. Because I did not stop for death, he kindly stopped for me. It's like that, isn't it? It's one simple line. Or she writes, I'm nobody, who are you? Are you nobody too? Says the Buddhist side of Emily. I'm nobody, who are you? Are you nobody too? We come out of nowhere and go to nowhere. 
as you enter into meditation, as we do together, there are sometimes ideas that we have, all right, I'll meditate and I'll become peaceful and quiet and empty, so forth. But then you discover, like Thich Nhat Hanh's paper, that we contain everything, all things, what Emily Dickinson called the mob within the heart. And so you sit quiet for just a short time, even in this evening, and there's sleepiness and fear and hopes and restlessness and all the unfinished voices and the business that we put aside and didn't want to deal with those grief and tears that are there waiting for us to weep. And the longing and the love that we never expressed and the creativity. We get to hear all those voices and name them. Oh, there's planning and remembering and sadness and joy and excitement and happiness and anxiety. The mob within the heart. Carl Sandburg knew this. He put it this way. He said, there is a wolf in me, fangs pointed for tearing, gashes a red tongue for raw meat, hot lapping of blood, and I keep the wolf because the wilderness gave it to me and the wilderness will not let it go. And there is a fox in me, a silver gray fox. I sniff and guess and pick things out of the wind and air, nose in the dark night, and there is a hog in me, snout and belly, machinery for eating and grunting and sleeping satisfied I got from the wilderness. There is a fish in me. I know I came from salt blue water gates and scurried with shoals of herring. There is a baboon in me, clambering clawed dog face, yelping a gaulut's hunger, hairy under the armpits. And there is an eagle in me and a mockingbird. And they fly among the rocky mountains of my dreams and flights among the Sierra crags. And the mockingbird warbles in the early forenoon before the dew is gone and the Chattanoogas of my hopes. Oh, I got a zoo. I got a menagerie inside my ribs, under my bony head, under my red valve heart. And I got something else. It is a man heart, a woman child heart. It is a father and mother and lover came from God knows where. It's going to God knows where. For I am the keeper of the zoo. And I say yes and no, and I sing and kill, and I am a pal of the world. I came from the wilderness, and the wilderness will not let me go. Thank you, Carl. That's the best meditation poem that I know. Haven't you noticed? And Freud put it this way with his struggles in Western psychology to understand. He said, wherever I've gone, a poet has been there before me. So a question for us as we undertake this practice of awakening, the great heart of compassion, the awareness, the eyes of wisdom and knowing, how do we relate to the zoo that we've been given? Meditation is an invitation to presence, aliveness, to a a passion, if you will, in the face of all things. Sometimes people mistakenly think of meditation as a kind of withdrawal from life, a a removal, um, a deadening, let me just tamp down everything quieted and so forth. But it's not that at all. Thomas Carlyle writes, It is good to use best china. Treasured dishes, the most genuine goblet, the oldest lace tablecloth. 
There is a risk, of course, every time we use anything or anyone shares an intimate moment, a fragile cup of revelation, but not to touch, not to handle the artifacts of being human. That is the quiet crash, the deadly catastrophe, where nothing is enjoyed or broken, spilled or spoken, stained or mended, where nothing is ever lived, loved, laughed over, wept over, where nothing is lost or found. And so the invitation of awareness, of mindfulness itself, is to open to life. This breath, this step, these experiences of body, of heart, of mind. Rumi, who is probably the most amazing of all spiritual poets, 100,000 verses. They just poured through him like Mozart. I think Mozart was just writing it down as fast as he could. You know, that he was listening to it and saying, hey, where's the paper? The same for Rumi. Actually, Rumi didn't write it down. Rumi had, like, like um, Boswell and was writing, you know, following Samuel Johnson around. Um, Rumi had a couple of disciples who went with him everywhere and kept writing down. And Rumi's just listening to it and saying, well, this is how it is. And, you know, he'd go in the market or in the baths and these incredible things would come out. And Rumi speaks of the spiritual life through the words of poetry and expresses it in three dimensions. Three dimensions. It said the Dharma is good in the beginning, good in the middle, and good in the end. These... Dimensions of the journey Rumi speaks of as the camel, the lion, and the child. And as you hear, you can sense how each of these images touch the heart, awaken some other part of our sensibility. The camel symbolizes one dimension of spiritual practice, which is necessary devotion, repetition, service, what Gandhi called blessed monotony, the willingness of the heart to make a commitment to sit, to meditate, to pray, to breathe, over and over breathing in, over and over breathing out. There's a thought, there's judgment, there's fear. Oh, this is the 45th time I've felt fear this month. All right. Fear, fear, acknowledging and allowing that too to come as a wave and be honored respectfully and then pass as it does. This is the quality of the camel. It's that of manual labor, even in the desert. And one of the things that the camel does is it kneels. If you've ever gone, I went on a camel safari once in the Indian desert. First it kneels and you kind of climb up and you get up and there's this amazing kind of rocking thing that you go through all day. And then we forgot to bring, we didn't bring enough water. And so there we were, and our guide said, oh, there's a well over there, and brought us, it was this kind of green-covered desert bracken. Well, no thank you, we said. We'll just be in the hot desert and see if we can make it for the rest of the day. The camel is bowing, honoring, um, taking what is given again and again and saying yes to this too, even though it's difficult. It's the willingness to make this human journey from birth through life to death. 
one of the great poems of this quality of the camel is uh, Rilke's poem on the man watching. I can tell by the ways the trees beat after so many dull days on my worried window panes that a storm is coming, he begins, speaking of the storm. What we choose to fight is so tiny, and what fights with us is so great. If only we would let ourselves be dominated as things do by some immense storm, we would become strong too. When we win, it's with small things, and the triumph itself makes us small. What is extraordinary and eternal does not want to be bent by us. I mean the angel who appeared to the wrestlers of the Old Testament when the wrestlers' sinews grew long like metal strings. He felt them under his fingers like chords of deep music. Whoever was beaten by this angel, or often simply declined the fight, went away proud and strengthened and great from that harsh hand. Winning does not tempt that one. This is how we grow, by being defeated decisively by constantly greater things. So this is the quality of the camel that's willing just to go through the desert of one's life in a humble way, not, not a kind of, oh, I'm a humble person, but the, the healing that takes place where we say yes, even to what's difficult. And of course, one has to find the camel. Rumi says, you've lost your camel, my friend. Everyone's giving you advice. You don't know where your camel is, but you do know these casual directions are wrong. Even someone who hasn't lost a camel, who's never even owned a camel, gets in on the excitement. Yes, I've lost my camel too. A big reward for whoever finds it. He says this to be part owner of your camel when you find it. He has indeed lost something, but he doesn't know it, wanting and imitating others. But what to do? Calling out what the others call out, suddenly he sees a camel there, the one he didn't even know he lost. And then he does become a seeker. He turns aside and goes by himself toward this camel. The sincere friend asks, why have you left my search? Up till now I was a fake. I was flattering, with you, flattering you, stealing camel descriptions. But now I know the camel is real. I saw it for myself. Like a thief, I crept and entered a house and discovered it was my own home. Where is the camel? Like a thief, I crept and entered a house and discovered it was my own home. Spiritual practice in the most fundamental way is humbling, or Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche put it another way, to meditate generally involves one insult after another, (laughs) inwardly, right? And some part of it is a kind of healing, because we sit and the wounds of our body or the wounds of our soul, they show themselves, the grief that we carry, the things that we've longed for and never been able to touch, the sorrows of the world around us. And to become still and deep and open, we have to be willing to receive these with a kind and respectful attention. Emily Dickinson 
There is a pain so utter, it swallows substance up, then covers it in trance. And when we sit, it's as if we take the veils of trance away and let the grief or the rage or the fear or the longing, whatever it is, also be received honorably to touch each with kindness or respect. Gabriela Mistral, Chilean poet. A woman is singing in the valley. The shadows falling blot her out, but her song spreads over the fields. Her deathless heart, alive with grief, gathers all the silent voices into her voice, sharp now, yet very sweet. Does she sing for the husband who looks at her silently, or a child whom her song caresses, or her own heart, helpless like a babe at nightfall? Night grows maternal before this song that goes to meet it. The stars with a sweetness that is human are beginning to come out. The sky full of stars becomes human and understands the sorrows of this world. Her song, pure as water, filled with light, cleanses the plain and rinses the mean airs of the day in which we hate. And from the throat of this woman who keeps on singing, the day rises again, nobly evaporating toward the beauty of the star. There's a kind of tenderness in this language of hers. Like Mary Oliver, who says in her poem, you do not have to be good. You do not have to walk for a hundred miles on your knees through the desert repenting. You only have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. Tell me about despair, yours and I will tell you mine. So this is the quality of tenderness and a willingness to see with the eyes of the great mother or the great father of the heart of compassion. And there's a kind of devotion in it that goes into what's difficult in the dark with a kind of blind trust. Rabindranath Tagore who won the Nobel Prize for his poetry much earlier in the century. He wrote, I thought that my voyage had come to its end, the last limit of my power, that the path before me was closed, provisions exhausted, and the time come to take shelter in a silent obscurity. But I find thy will knows no end in me, and when old words die out on the tongue, new melodies break forth from the heart, and where the old tracks are lost, new country is revealed again in its wonders. So there's the camel. And that's one dimension of meditation and really of a life of wakefulness. And then there's the stage that Rumi calls the lion. or the lioness. And the quality of the stage of the lion or the lioness is a kind of bravery and the roar of authority of a lion. I am here in the midst of it all. 
the Buddha called his teachings the lion's roar. And when he was challenged by people, do you really know what you're talking about? Have you really done it? He would say, I have done all of the great ascetic practices of India until I almost died. I did them all and I have found the way to freedom. I have done this myself. And if you wish to be free, you must only sit and face yourself with the same awareness, with the same openness, and you too can be free. And all kinds of people challenged him, and he responded each time, there is a truth, there is a way to awaken for you and you. You may do so. The lion's roar. Did you ever hear a lion roar? It's a fantastic thing. Even in the zoo, and the lion has this great big bellow, sort of this huge sound. You can go to the zoo and all the animals, the monkeys are making their kind of funny calls and the birds are kind of twittering. And all of a sudden, ah, this huge roar. And the lion, if you, if you see a lion roar, it roars with its whole body. It's not just its throat, but its whole body becomes this kind of container and it opens its mouth wide and oh, this huge roar comes out. And then when it does, everything becomes quiet in the zoo. The birds shut up and the monkeys get quiet. It's like something's really speaking here. And for the lion, this quality, it's not duty. Oh, I'm doing it and I have to continue in another breath and another meditation and another... This is the resting in the center of our being, in the center of the earth and speaking the truth. And it honors and bestows this blessing of this great honesty. This is again the Buddha's lion's roar at one point. He says, I consider the positions of kings and rulers as but dust motes in a sunbeam. I see the treasures of gold and gems as but broken tiles. I look upon the finest silken robes as tattered rags. I see the myriad worlds of the universe as small seeds and the great Indian Ocean as drops of dew at my feet. I perceive the teachings of the world to be the illusions of magicians and look upon the judgment of right and wrong as the serpentine dance of dragons and the rise and fall of beliefs as but traces left by the four seasons. I see all of this great dance of birth and death and rest in the place of wisdom in the midst of them. And this is your Buddha nature and mine. This is that place of knowing to find one's royalty or one's dignity in meditation, one's own Buddha nature. I like this poem that speaks to it in another way. This is from uh, William Stafford, a story that could be true. If you were exchanged in the cradle and your real mother died without ever telling the story, then no one knows your name. And somewhere in the world your father is lost and needs you, but you are far away. He can never find how true you are. And when the great wind comes and the robberies of the rain, you stand in the corner shivering. The people who go by you wonder at their calm. They miss the whisper that runs any day in your mind. Who are you really, wanderer? And the answer you have to give 
no matter how dark and cold the world around you is, maybe I'm a king, maybe I'm a queen. The answer you have to give. If you were exchanged in the cradle and your real mother died, then without ever telling the story, then no one knows your name. And when I read this poem, I, I think of it, I talk about this, of, of how much children understand this. Because there's always that moment with children, if you really speak to them honestly, where on certain days they expect that there will be a knock at the door, and then they open and there's somebody dressed in this amazing garb, you know, in a great chariot outside, and the knock says, hello, are you there? You know, whatever the child's name is. You know, these are not your real parents, right? You were actually born as the princess or prince or whatever, the king or queen, and we've come to take you back to where you really, you know, the palace is waiting for you. And this is that quality of uh, finding one's own inner royalty, the roar of the lion, the sense of beauty that is there in every human being, in every human heart. Nikki Giovanni puts it this way. This is sort of the feminine version of that. I was born in the Congo, walked to the Fertile Crescent and built the Sphinx. I designed a pyramid so tough that a star that only glows every 100 years falls into the center of it, giving divine perfect light. I am bad. (laughs) I sat on the throne drinking nectar with Allah. Got so hot I sent an ice age to Europe to control my thirst. My oldest daughter, Nefertiti, the tears from my birth pains created the Nile. I am a beautiful woman. I gazed on the forest and burned out the Sahara Desert. With a packet of goat's meat and a change of clothes, I crossed it in two hours. I am a gazelle so swift, you can't catch me. For a birthday present when he was three, I gave my son Hannibal an elephant. He gave me Rome for Mother's Day. My strength goes on. My son Noah built an ark. I stood proudly at the helm as we sailed on a soft summer day. I turned myself into myself and was Jesus. All men intone my loving name, all praise. I am the one who would save. I sowed diamonds in my backyard. My bowels deliver uranium. The filings from my fingernails are semi-precious jewels. On a trip north, I caught cold and blew my nose, giving oil to the Arab world. I am so hip, even my errors are correct. I sailed west to reach east and had to round off the earth as I went, and the hair from my head thinned in gold was laid across three continents. I am so perfect, so divine, so ethereal, so surreal, I cannot be comprehended except by my permission. I mean, I can fly like a bird in the endless sky. That's the lion's roar. Ah, what pleasure in it for life to be alive, to see it. So there's the camel, that healing and devotion, the tenderness of the heart that's willing to look with the eyes of compassion and say, yes, us too. We all share the sorrows and the difficulties and the beauty of life. There's the lion's roar, this place of dignity in Buddha nature. And the third stage that Rumi speaks of is the child, the child of the spirit. So Angelus Silesis wrote, If in your heart you make a manger for his birth, 
then God will once again become a child on the earth. It's the quality of wonder and newness of spirit, what Suzuki Roshi called beginner's mind. The goal of practice, the end, the goal of practice is always to keep our beginner's mind, to see this moment afresh and this and this. Do you know the space probe Voyager? There's a couple that have been sent out to Jupiter, and then after they fly by the moons of Jupiter, then they go out to Neptune and Pluto, and then a few of them have gone, at least a couple, past Pluto out to the far reaches of the galaxy. They're on their way out there as messengers. And in them, they put inside Voyager pictures of a man and a woman, and hundreds of animals, pictures of the surface of the earth, of the rainforests and the oceans. And then when you touch it, there's a, there's a kind of solar-activated recorder in there, and if you were to open it and touch it, it begins to speak, and it has words in 55 languages. And then it has 300 pieces of music, Bach and Beethoven and Louis Armstrong, and drumming from the best of Kenya's drummers and Balinese gamelan. And what we're sending out to the stars is our music and our words. The child of the spirit is that ability in each of us to reclaim amazement, wonderment, what Mary Oliver's phrase is, I, all my life I was a bride married to amazement. And it doesn't take much that spring comes at all. is quite amazing. The days are just starting to get longer again. Go and watch the water find its way down to the ocean. And it does it all by itself, so beautifully. I mean, it's true that it's still on some of our roads and in our yards, but it's on its way. And it knows how to do it. The amazing thing of being alive, sleep. I love to talk about sleep. First of all, sleep is quite honorable. In Buddhist tradition, it's called the poor man's nirvana. Right? <laughs> but isn't the most bizarre thing that for a third or whatever much of the day, most of the mammals and some other creatures lie down, close their eyes, and conk out and go unconscious, and then go to this other world filled with dreams every night. Even if you don't remember them, they're there. All oh, this dream world. And then you wake up again. How bizarre <laughs> on this earth. Go to sleep again, some other world, then come back to this one, which is the real world. You know? Or seeing, sight, this human eye. There's this round thing in our head, right? This, very, this orb that looks around and it sees. Nobody understands it. Oh, there's some kind of, there's the optic nerves and they can kind of poke around and say, yeah, this is the part where it gets tickled when the eye sees. But how we see, no one has a clue. It's like Whitman's line where he writes about the amazement, you know, that a leaf of grass is no less than the journey work of the stars and a tree toad, the sheaf work for the highest and the running blackberry would adorn the parlors of heaven. And a mouse is miracle enough to stagger sextillions of infidels. Just the existence of a mouse 
and of course all that it takes to make a mouse because somebody said you know what it takes to make apple pie from scratch is first you have to make a universe right <laughs> all of it one of my favorite times really in my daughter's Caroline's life was when she was just a toddler and I could pick her up easily and introduce her to things and bring her to trees and rub her hand on the bark and say, well, this is, a, this is an oak tree, you know, and this is a, the walnut tree that we have in our yard and those are the stars and begin to give her the names for things. And it was so beautiful. It's like Zen Master Ryokan, in my bowl, dandelions, lilacs, and the Buddhas of the three worlds, he writes. Because Ryokan spent a lot of his time with children, all his spring poems. How can we ever lose interest in life? No matter what happens, spring comes again. The cherry trees bloom in the mountains. Or the children run to greet me for the first time this spring. My, how they've grown. Playing in a garden among the cherry trees, my sleeves get covered with blossoms as the flowers fall. And then playing with the village children this warm, misty spring day, no one wants it to end. He goes on. Tonight the plum trees reflect the silver moon. Both are in full bloom. Entranced, I did not return home till evening. Once again, the children and I are fighting a battle using spring grasses. Hi, thank you. Now advancing, now retreating, each time with more refinement. Twilight, everyone has returned home. Priest Ryokan, too, must fade like this morning's flowers, but his heart will remain behind. And then he writes one other short verse. Oh, that my priest's robes were wide enough to gather up all the suffering people in this floating world. This simple kind of sentiment that's repeated over the centuries in Japanese poetry of the changing of the seasons and the birth and the death of beings, all of us, and the beauty that life allows for us each day, each moment that we're aware. The toddlers and the preschoolers, you know, that walk around like little drunken sailors and so forth, they're the ones that know this child of the spirit the best. I remember taking these two preschoolers that I lived with for a couple of years, several years, that were like my own children many years ago, Johnny and Seth were their names, and I wanted to take them to the circus. So I got tickets for the Ringing Brothers Barman Bailey Circus in Boston. And we went, it was springtime, and there were all the great, you know, acts of high wire and people doing great balancing and trampoline and tumbling and stuff like that. And they were little. They were only, I think, uh, three and four years old, and they could kind of watch it. But you know how three and four years old are? They're not so interested in things far away. Things close up are more interesting. So they kind of won. There was tigers and, you know, all those kinds of things. And then they brought out the elephants. Oh, this was interesting, because elephants are so big. 
and the elephants were kind of doing their parade around the ring, and we had seats right down in like the second or third row. And then the elephant parade stopped right where we were for the elephants to do something. There was one elephant there. And then all of a sudden, the elephant in front of us peed. <laughs> and there was this huge puddle, like, you know, a lake. And the two kids I was with, their jaws drop open. Look at that. I mean, you know, preschool pee-pee and poo-poo jokes are kind of, that's, that's what's really interesting. The fact that we have these bizarre bodies where we put stuff in one end and it comes out the other. But here was an elephant doing it too, you know. Wow, look at that. And then they were kind of nudging each other and all excited about it. And then the elephant pooed. Right? And it was these big things like bigger than a human head. Plop, right? And then another one. Plop. And they're going, wow, look at that. <laughs> Fantastic. Oh. Amazing. I mean, that's us. You know, we have this one hole in the end that I talk about that we stuff dead plants and animals in and kind of move it through and comes out the other way and we lumber it around and it's this amazing thing that you are born into for a time and others. And can we not treat each other with compassion and respect and amazement that we're here at all? So this is the child of the spirit, the beginner's mind, the lion, the camel, the child of the spirit. And all of these, like the poems and the sense of beauty or art that they awaken, um, are to move somehow from this small sense of our problems and difficulties to some greater perspective of the heart. Like the Ojibwe Indian poem, sometimes I go about pitying myself when all the while I'm being carried by great winds across the sky. To see with the eyes of a Buddha, to receive the world with the great heart of compassion, means living in the mystery of this present moment again and again. And it's what we train, what we come here to remind ourselves to learn. This breath, this step, this fear or longing or love or all the animals in the zoo. (coughs) And to allow a space of understanding and the mystery to be present. And somehow out of that, in a moment, it begins to change our world from this kind of limited self, the busyness inside and all the things and worries and stuff that we have to do. It's not that you don't do them. There can be a moment just like the clearing of the clouds that happened yesterday. The sun would come out and there were rainbows around if you looked, a whole lot of them in the Bay Area. These rainbows, in a moment it can happen. Realize, oh, I was really caught up in that, wasn't I? In that whole drama. Let's see, was that Hamlet or Lear? Oh, maybe that was Romeo and Juliet. You know, which one was it? And then there's this kind of waking up. That was quite a drama. And here we are again. This moment, this breath, this person in front of us, this sky this new rainfall. And therein lies our freedom. In a moment, the freedom of the heart, the awakening that the Buddha spoke of, the dignity, 
the possibility not only to bear all things, but to see the freedom and to meet all things with compassion, to see the beauty of life is there in a moment. And I end with one more poem that was given to me by a woman who lived for a long time in San Anselmo named Lynn Park. And uh, I have to explain a little bit about her poem. She has, uh, she was sick. She was in a wheelchair. And the disease that she had is called brittle bone disease, which meant even as a child, as she would try to learn to walk, when she would fall, she would break a bone. So she said, I broke my bones 15 times before I learned to walk. And this is her poem. She talks about the transformation of the heart and the world. Take the time to pray, or to meditate if you will. Take the time to pray. It is the sweet oil that eases the hinge into the garden so the doorway can swing open easily. You can always go there. Consider yourself blessed. These stones that break your bones will build the altar of your love. Your home is the garden. Carry its odor hidden in you into the city. Suddenly your enemies will buy seed packets and fall to their knees to plant flowers in the dirt by the road. They'll call you friend and honor your passing among them. And when asked, who is that? They will say, oh, that one has been beloved by us since before time began. And this from people who would have trampled over you to maintain their advantage. Give everything away except your garden, your worry, your fear, your small-mindedness. Your garden can never be taken from you. Let's sit for a moment. Let your sitting be a poem, the movement of the breath, the joys or fears, the sorrows or loves that come and dance through the heart, the liveliness of this body. Give everything away except your garden, your worries, your fear, your small-mindedness. 
Your garden can never be taken from you. I wish that they had children still memorizing poetry in school like they used to in the old days. If you've heard this talk before, some of you I know have, maybe you'll start to remember the poems. I hope so. Hmm. So we come together as we have tonight to sit, to remind ourselves really collectively that it's, it's a really terrific job that I have because I come here and I have to remind myself of presence and the possibility of awakening again. Um, And then to carry that spirit as you leave um, into the parking lot and on the roads, drive um, with good manners, basically, because it's dark. Take your time. Um, And let yourself take time this week to sit in meditation or to walk in meditation, or to go for a walk by the oceans, or smell the spring smells and walk along the streams. Um, And let yourself be nourished by your attention and by life itself that's coming. And consider, if you will, that Spirit Rock is one of your homes, even if you've just come this evening. Come back and take a walk we've had beautiful paths through the woods and along the streams, or come and sit again or join us. And I thank you. Let us do a very simple chant to end. One syllable, which is the sound of opening, receiving, letting go. The sound, ah. We'll just chant that for a minute or so and then sit in the silence and leave. Ah. Blessings and compassion. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.